Our mission. Our mission is about helping people find and follow Jesus. If you couldn't tell, Vacation Bible School, it's right here. That's why this room looks the way it does. I'm excited about that. But today, for the message, we are going to continue in our series through the book of Romans. I've been calling this How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. Hopefully, years from now, somebody's going to say, hey, what's the book of Romans about? I know what the book of Romans is about. It's how God makes bad men good, or the imputed righteousness of Christ. If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've come all the way to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. A message I'm calling, What We Have in Christ. Let me recap what we've learned so far in the book of Romans. We've We've been walking through this letter Since the beginning of this year, taking a few detours, and we'll probably take a few more detours, but Lord willing, we should finish this before the end of the year. But already, Paul has explained to us how we all have this knowledge of God. Every single man and woman, we have a knowledge of God, and we've all rejected what's been plain to us. That's Romans chapter 1. And then then Paul has explained how man-made religion is absolutely worthless. It's never going to get you to heaven. It's never going to make you right in the size, uh, in the eyes of God. That's Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 3, Paul explained how no one seeks after God. How, how we've all fallen short and sinned against God. But then God justifies us by grace. The salvation, it is a free gift of God. We can never earn it. We definitely don't deserve it. But God freely gives it to us when we place faith in what Jesus Christ, his one and only son, did for us on the cross. And when we place faith in him, that's when we are saved. I mean, this is just, this grace is absolutely amazing. And in Romans chapter 4, I think like Paul, he anticipated some pushback, especially from the Jewish crowd. that They think that doing all the do's and don'ts and don'ts is what saves you. And so Paul proved that it's simply by faith he needed this through Abraham. Abraham is the Jewish poster child for salvation by faith. Because Paul, he was quoting Moses when he said that Abraham believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness. You see, it's not about keeping the feasts. It's not about what you eat or what you don't eat. It's not about washing your hands in a certain way. And then again, it's not about doing the do's and don'ts the don'ts that religion, religiosity seems to make a salvation about. But it's simply by faith. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explained how just how assured our salvation is. Since there's nothing that we did to earn salvation, there's nothing we can do to forfeit our salvation either. That's Romans chapter 5. Then by the time you get to Romans chapter 6, Paul was anticipating the very legalistic argument that says, well, if we're saved by grace, there's nothing we can lose, do to lose salvation. Well, then that's going to cause people to go wild with their sin. And Paul has said, certainly not, by no means, that if you are truly saved, if you've been born again, you've been indwelling by the Holy Spirit, he's not going to let you get away with whatever you want to do. You see, here's what Paul wants us to know. That post-salvation, believers have a choice. Okay, We choose to sin and we choose not to sin. But for a believer, it is still a choice. And then in Romans chapter 7, Paul gets real, real, if you will, with his own personal struggle with sin. I mean, think about this. The man, after he's on the road to Damascus, he's, he's wanting to stamp out Christianity. And he meets the resurrected Savior Jesus Christ comes to him and he is radically changed. But then even after this, Paul still struggled mightily with his sin. 
In Romans chapter 7, verse 13 through 23, Paul continues to use this first-person pronoun over and over again. Paul is pouring out his heart with his own personal struggle. It's like me, 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 I, I, my, 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 over and over again. And if you don't know this, this is the same man that contributed more books to our Bibles than anybody else. Okay? And still, he's still struggling with sin. And then in verse 24, he cries out for an answer. He asks, wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Anybody identify with Paul? Yeah, amen. That's me right there. Paul is singing my song. And then very Jewishly, Paul asks a question and then he immediately answers that question when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What Paul wants us to know is that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. And so he's telling us, if you're a believer, you are going to struggle with sin. But Jesus is the solution. Look what happens. Let's pick up our Bibles and begin in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, a Christian's punishment is gone. A Christian's punishment is gone. Doesn't that make you just feel relieved? That should like just lift the biggest weight in the history of time off your chest. A Christian's punishment is gone. Jump ahead, if you will, to the last chapter. Excuse me, last verse, same chapter. Romans 8, verse 39. Paul writes, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What Paul is saying is there is going to be no punishment nor separation for a believer. Okay? If you are in Christ Jesus, you're not going to be punished and you will never be separated from God. Two great bookends to this great chapter is saying, saying no condemnation, no separation for the believer. I've heard Romans chapter 8 described as the hope for all believers. I've heard Romans chapter 8 described as uh, as a five-carat diamond ring for, for a believer. It is the crowning jewel of the entire book of Romans. And there's some people that have called Romans chapter 8 verse 1 the most hopeful verse in the entire Bible. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. There is no comma. There is a period after that. End of story. Now, just on a side note, what Paul did not say, he did not say there is therefore now no mistakes made by those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not what Paul said. If maybe you think you are mistakeless and you're married, just ask your spouse. I'm sure they'll tell you, no, you make mistakes. Paul did not say there is now for, therefore no failures for those who are in Christ Jesus, because that's not true. Paul did not say there is therefore no no consequences for your actions for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he did say there is no condemnation. There is a big difference between consequences and condemnation. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Abraham. Just mentioned him earlier. One of the the giants of of our Bibles. He, He messed up. Had a wife. Lied about her. Two times. He had a lapse in faith. And he suffered for his consequences. 
King David, another giant of the Old Testament, he murdered a man, lied about it, committed adultery. He suffered consequences for that. His wife took a man's wife and she became pregnant and he tarnished the name of God in front of the whole world that was watching him. The apostle Peter, he tried to kill a man. Lucky for that guy, he's a fisherman and he missed, only took off his ear instead of his head. Then he goes on to deny Christ three times. Peter suffered mightily for his consequences. Paul and Barnabas, they got into an argument over a friend. Their, their um, relationship was torn in two. It lasted for years. And so they suffered consequences. And all those examples, and I can go through a hundred more, these men suffered for the consequences they made as believers. But not a single one of them suffered condemnation for their sin. None. You could say, verse 1 of chapter 8 this way, you could say, therefore, now, not one condemnation. Kind of like that. Think about that. In your life, if you're a believer, not one condemnation. That means zero. That's what that means. The word condemnation in the Greek is katrima. And it appears only 12 times in our New Testament. It means damnatory sentence. That's what it means. And it's a very strong word. You know what that means if you're a believer? There'll be zero, nada, zilch, damnatory sentencing if you're a believer. There is a coming performance evaluation. Don't know if you know this. There's this thing called the Bema Seat of Christ or the, the, the Judgment Seat of Christ. And that's where every single believer will stand before King Jesus. And we will be rewarded based off of how faithful we were in this life. But that is to the believer. The other side of the coin is there is condemnation coming for non-believers. That's exactly what Paul said back in Romans chapter 1 when he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So recognize, please, if you're a believer, there is a coming performance evaluation. And for unbelievers, there's a coming damnatory sentence. And then no one can say in the future, well, I didn't know. No, you knew. You just chose to ignore what you've been plainly told. In fact, if you never even read a Bible before in your life, God still wrote this on all of our hearts so that no one was out. No one's with the excuse. But here's the reason. You're like, well, why won't I get sentenced? Why is there no condemnation for a believer? And the reason why is because the father already sentenced the son. God the Father treated the Son like a guilty criminal so you and I can walk away scot-free. Read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Word of God says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to really recognize this, that God the Father... Treated God the Son like a, like a sinner so that he could treat sinners like he does his son. So Jesus Christ got tried and sentenced for our crimes. And he willingly paid for our crimes on the cross. But here's the deal. This is why this is so important. There's no double jeopardy. There is no double jeopardy. Double jeopardy is where um, a man gets tried twice for the same crime. Once we've been tried and sentenced and punished, you can't be tried again. That's where we're getting at is that Jesus already paid for our crimes. 
Therefore, God will never condemn the believer. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, do we deserve that? Absolutely not. We deserve the opposite of that. But that's what what God gives us in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus said about this. He said, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Did you get that? It wasn't that you might have someday. No, that you current present tense, you have it. You have it right now in the present tense. He who hears my word is what Jesus said. Hear my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Can that be any clearer what Jesus is trying to say? You know, you know, and then you hear sometimes a believer will say something crazy like, well, this happened and so God must be punishing me. Here's, don't say that. God doesn't punish believers. Okay, there are consequences for our bad decision, but because of the law of double jeopardy, God's not going to punish you again. God's already punished his son for your crime, so there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the phrase, in Christ, what does that exactly mean? We'll look at our Bibles again. Look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, a Christian's position is defined. In Christ Jesus. Here's the reason there is no condemnation. Because there's been this address change. You have a new position. You're now in Christ Jesus. How important is that? Well, somebody has counted it up and has said, I didn't do the counting. I'm just saying what they said. Said this phrase, in Christ Jesus, appears 87 times in our New Testament. It is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite description for a believer. He wanted to describe what a Christian is. And he says, hey, it's, it's somebody that is in Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, Peter uses this phrase twice. Luke uses it once. And then the rest of the time, it's all the Apostle Paul saying, in Christ, in Christ, or so some in Jesus, something like that. In fact, if you were to count up all the equivalent times of something like in Christ was said, they say in whom or in him, there's at least 130 times that phrase is, is used. See, Paul is doing this because he wants us to know that every single man and woman, you're one of two people. You are either in Adam or you're in Christ. That, that means that you are affected by and identified by either being in Adam or in Christ. There's no third option. Read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. The word of God says, for as in Adam, all died. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. Do you see the difference there? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you, are, if you belong to Christ, then you're in Christ, meaning that you're in union with Christ, you're in communion with Christ, you have this connection to Christ. A.W. Tozer, he's a great theologian from way back when, he said, we do not preach Christ with a comma after his name as though waiting for something else. Or Christ with a dash after his name as though leading to something else. But we preach Christ, period. You see, when you're in Christ, everything changes. Because being in Christ makes you a new creation. 
Read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The Word of God says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, being in Christ removes the condemnation. It removes the damnatory sentence. Because you're not the old you anymore. You know, there's these TV shows that are, that are real popular, at least they were a few years ago, where there's always some makeover, a home makeover, a personal makeover. Let me tell you, if you want a makeover, come to Christ. He's going to make you a new creation. And in, in being in, in Christ develops this new connection with the creator of the world. In Romans chapter 16, Paul is going to write about his fellow workers who are in Christ. He's like, hey, I am in Christ. They're in Christ. We're all in Christ. If we're believers. You see, if you're in Christ, there's this new family connection. And we're going to talk about this greater in, in a couple weeks here. So our, we have this new address if we're in Christ because we are put into God's family. Prior to this, we had a no good, no account, lying spiritual father called the devil. That we all once belonged to that family. And then when you're in Christ, you get adopted into the family of God. So that means if you're not in Christ, you're still an orphan. But for a believer, the punishment is over. It's done. It's over because our address has changed. But there's a third fact that I want to point out this, this morning, just how secure we are, and it has to do with the power. Pick up our Bibles and read in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. The Word of God says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and, law and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three, a Christian's power is dynamic. You're like, what's dynamic about it? Let me, let me kind of flesh this out for us. In Romans chapter 8, there has been a noticeable shift from Romans chapter 7, okay? 8 and 7, big difference, okay? Remember what I said earlier in Romans chapter 7, Paul is being very personal with his first person, personal pronouns, the I, 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 me, 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 my, my, over and over again. They're totally gone in Romans chapter 8, okay? And, and in an absence of the personal pronoun, it's all about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dominates Romans chapter 8. In fact, somebody has said that Romans chapter 8 is the, the Holy Spirit chapter of the book of Romans. So up until this point, think from Romans chapter 1, from Romans chapter 7, there has been one or two references to the Holy Spirit. Okay, One is, is kind of obscure and one is blatant. If we were to turn to Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Paul speaks of the, the spirit of holiness. Now, that can be a reference to the Holy Spirit, and maybe it's not. We can't be dogmatic on that. But the, the second reference comes in chapter 5, verse 5, where Paul says that the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So think about it. Up in, in Romans chapter 7, up to 7, only two mentions of, of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8 alone, there is at least 19 references to the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, look in verse 4. 
Paul says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul said, in us. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul did not say that they'd be fulfilled by us. Do you hear the difference? It's, it's huge. So you see, here's what Paul wants us to know. It's not you. You didn't do it. God's the one that did it. It's not your effort. It's not your work. It's fulfilled in us. It's not fulfilled by us. Keep reading verse 4. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is, according to the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit is who Paul is talking about there. And so in Romans chapter 8, it's all about the freedom that comes from being in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm going to speak, uh, I'm going to kind of flesh out a story that probably most of you have been going to church a while be familiar with. Um, if you go to John chapter 14, this is right the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he's already taught them some, some amazing truths. And he says, hey guys, uh, I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you, you can't go, and you're not going to see me anymore. And the guys get all bummed out, and they get depressed, and they're asking questions. And, and he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And just, just a rabbit trail, if you've ever read that and go, oh, man, if I was like the 13th apostle and I was there, I'd know what Jesus was talking about. You're wrong. You wouldn't know what he's talking about. Okay? You would know. I would know. None of us would know because that doesn't make any sense because think about it. Here's Jesus, second member of the Trinity, the God-man come in human flesh, um, the Messiah, Savior. What's better than having him right there right now? Because Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is telling when I go, the Holy Spirit is coming. And this is going to be even better than that. And to the believers, if you ever think, man, if Jesus is here right now, we got something better. According to Jesus, it's the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. The word of God says, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In the Holy Spirit, we are given freedom. Now that sounds good. You're like, okay, that sounds great. But what are you talking about? Freedom. How? Well, verse 8 gives us the answer. Read it again. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let me kind of explain what, what, he, what Paul's talking about in verse 2, 3, and 4, okay? Because he's using the word law in two different ways there, okay? In verse 2, Paul says, the, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. One word, two different usages, if you will. Okay, the first one, Paul's not talking like, like a law code, like the Ten Commandments, like the, the law of Moses. That's not what he's talking about there. The word in the Greek is namas, okay? It means a controlling principle. 
That's what that word means, a governing principle, a driving force, if you will, kind of like we talk about the law of gravity. Paul's not talking about a written code there. He's talking about a controlling principle. Here's what he means, okay? Inside every single one of us, we have this desire, this bent, this, this twist to do those things that we shouldn't do. We have this impulse to do wrong. It's called the law of sin and death. We have this impulse to sin that's within us that leads to, to death. But in every side, excuse me, inside every believer, there's this new vitalizing desire that Paul calls the law of the spirit. And it, it moves you, if you will, to do what's right. So that's the first usage of the word law. He, Paul's talking about a controlling principle. The second word of the law found in verse 3 and 4 means what you think it means. Paul said, for, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own, own son. So that law, Paul is talking about the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. The, the, and because there's no qualifier there. So it's not the, the law of the spirit or the law of sin and death. He's just talking about the law there. And when Paul uses that word law this time, he, he's talking about the commandments, the, the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament couldn't fix the law of sin and death. You see, it tried, but it failed. Why? Paul said because it was weakened by the flesh. How is the law weakened by the flesh? Well, let me say, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. The law doesn't need to be changed. What's messed up is the flesh. That means you and I, we're the ones that are messed up. You see, we couldn't keep the law. No one can keep the law. That's except for Jesus, the God-man come in flesh. That's why he came. You see, God gave the law through Moses, and, and truth be told, even if you had never read the Bible, go, go to Genesis before Moses even comes on the scene, and there's references to the law, because God wrote the law on the hearts of men and women. And so God gave the law, he's written on our hearts, and then, and then so now God's going to write the law. And if you remember, the people are in the wilderness, and they go to the, to the mountain, and, and uh, there's all, I mean, God's glory everywhere. Um, if you go to, you can find it, and it talks about the thunder and lightning and God's glory everywhere. And the people are frightened. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. We don't want to go talk to God because we're scared. Hey, Moses, this is what we want you to do. You go up on that mountain, and you talk to God, and then you come down to, to us, and you tell us what he said. And then everything God tells you to do, we will do it. And if you read your Bible, if you read it every year, you get to that part, and you go, yeah, right. They're going to blow it, right? You're thinking, they're lying through their teeth. I don't think they're lying. Because I think in the moment, they were serious. Because remember, there's, there's fire and lightning and God's glory. And they're like, whoa, this is too much to handle. We're going to do it this time. We really mean it. I mean, God just led them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry, dry ground and then collapsed the Red Sea, saved them all, killed the Egyptians. It was awesome. So I think they were serious when they said, hey, we're going to keep the law. The problem is they didn't have the ability to follow through. Does that make sense? They said what they said, and they didn't have the ability for the follow-through. Kind of like when a kid comes to you, and they go, hey, hey, mom, hey, dad, I bet you $100 million this is true. First off, they don't have $100 million, right? And they're dead wrong. 
doesn't matter what you say. Truth is truth. And the kids are wrong. I think that's kind of where the, the people, the children of Israel are. So picture, they say, whatever God tells you to do, tell us and we will do it. Now, here's what I have to say. That's a good thing to say, right? Nothing wrong with saying it. But the problem is they never kept the law. Because they didn't have the ability. And the thing is, God knew it. That's why God responded to Moses and said, oh, my people that had such a heart within them, if it was only possible. But God says, it's not possible. God knows that people can't keep the law because weakened by the flesh, the law of Moses. It's not the law of Moses that it's weak. It's us. The problem is us. Because we can't keep the law. The flesh can't keep the law of God. And again, the law's not flawed. We're flawed. So when all the time people go, I'm saved because I keep the law. No, you don't. You don't keep the law of God. And if you think you keep the law, I'd really encourage you to read the book of Romans again. Because Romans says you don't keep the law. So what do we do? We, We can't keep the law. What do we do? Here's what we do. We need a new law. We need this new principle, if you will. We couldn't keep the old law, so we need a new law, right? Well, what's this new law that I'm talking about? Well, let me kind of try to paint a picture to illustrate what I'm talking about here. Everybody understands the law of gravity, right? Nobody. Okay, there's a little bit of interaction here. Does everybody understand the law of gravity? There we go. Now we're awake. Brian, make the coffee a little stronger next week. Now, um, so we understand the law of gravity, okay? Is there anything wrong with the law of gravity? No. The law of gravity is there. It holds our earth together. Um, There's times when I wish it didn't exist. Like when I get up in the morning, go step on the scale. It's like, man, that'd be nice. The the number be a little lighter. But there it is telling me the reality of life. Because the law of gravity is a law of nature. It's a law of physics, if you will. And, And again, it's there established to hold the earth together. Now, I remember a day that I got taken up onto Metal Ark. And I'm up on the metal arc overlook, looking over that lake. It's like, man, this is beautiful. Anybody been up there? Yeah. And if you're, man, man, wouldn't it be awesome if I could just jump off and soar with the birds and go over metal arc and just soar around? Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, thank you. Whoever saying, yeah, okay, this is where the point. That would be awesome. But there's a problem. I got the law of gravity. And if I try to jump, I'm not going to defeat the law of gravity. I'm going to merely demonstrate the law of gravity. And it's going to be a big splat on the bottom of the rocks. But what I do is I say, oh, wretched man that I am, if I could only fly. If there was only some law that could lift me off the ground and cause me to fly. Could we agree that anything that weighs several tons, there's probably like no chance of it flying. I'm a lot less. I know some of you are arguing. No, I'm a lot less than several tons, but I can't fly. What I need is, I need a new law. Well, did you know that commercial airplanes weigh, some of which weigh 100 tons? When you put people in fuel and luggage in, in a commercial airliner, they can weigh 100 tons, but yet they can soar with the birds. Why? Because there's a law that can override the law of gravity. If you put enough thrust and drag working together on an off object over a wingspan, it can actually lift heavy objects off the ground. You see, the law of gravity can be defeated with other laws that can override that law. And I'm telling you this very long-winded story so maybe you can, you can understand that the, what the law of Moses could not do because it's weakened by the flesh, 
God did by putting the Holy Spirit inside a believer. Does that make sense? The law of the indwelling spirit can override the law of Moses. The law of the indwelling Holy Spirit did something that is otherwise totally impossible. Because in the flesh, we can never keep God's law. Another reason to point why this is the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because no other way does God's spirit get put inside a believer. The law of Moses was never designed to save anyone. The law of Moses, it's a signal alarm. It's a, it's a fire, fire alarm going off in our minds saying, hey, something's wrong. You're in danger. You see, when you get that alarm going off, you've got to start looking for a way out, right? Well, Jesus provided the Spirit of God, which allows somebody to surpass the law of Moses. But here, here's a law we should all understand, Right? At the end of my life, it's going to bring the law of death. But this principle of the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, supersedes the law of sin and death. And that's the law that's holding me down. And, and just a side note to rabbit trail. Please don't think that the Holy Spirit is a force like in Star Wars. Don't do that. That's terrible. There's bad theology. He's also not a dove. He's not. He's a person, the third member of the Trinity, you know, he didn't become at, the, at, at Pentecost. The, the Holy Spirit did not become there, but that's where he started to indwell believers. He was at Genesis 1, 1, and for all eternity before that, he is God himself. So the question is, how do we live in victory today? Let's get practical. I, I went off on about eight different rabbit trails there. So let's bring it back. Okay, how do we live in victory here? How do we live for God? Here's the answer. Live for the Holy Spirit. And abide in Christ. Oh, Pastor John, that sounds too easy. I know, right? Let's get that one right. The, the word abide, it means to maintain contact. To, to maintain a constant living contact with Christ. And there's only way to, one way to do that. It's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It means daily, moment by moment, submission to Christ. You see, if you're in Christ, you stay in living contact with, with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And, and so you, sh- you have the Holy Spirit available to you if you're a believer. I mean, think about it. That's wild. God himself comes and lives inside a believer. And so this whole chapter here, it starts out, tells us our punishment is done. It's told us our position has been defined. We have this power of the Holy Spirit living inside us. Again, he's a person, which leads us to our, this fourth point I want to make to us. Let me, let's read the, the, the text. Jump to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if... In the fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, 
The spirit of life, excuse me, the spirit is life because of the righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Here's my fourth and final point for us this morning. A Christian's practice is to be different. So we're talking about practice here. It's all about practice. Little ode to Alan Iverson, if you remember that, that clip. But anyways, Paul said, we not, in verse 4, he said, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now in verse 5, it all changes, okay? Paul is basically contrasting two different people here. Paul is contrasting the believers and unbelievers, okay? He's not talking about a mature Christian and an immature Christian. No, here he's talking about the saved and the unsaved. He's talking about the saints and the ain'ts. Because you're one of those two people. You're either saved or you're not. That's it. You're either sheep or goats. One of those two animals describes your spiritual condition. You're either wheat or you're tares. You're one of those two plants. And that's who Paul is talking about here. He's talking about unbelievers that are totally earthbound people. They're only concerned with the here and the now. They're concerned with their their body appetites, feeling pleasure, feeling good, doing the things that they like to do. That's who Paul's talking about. The people who this world and this life, it's all about them. Paul would describe them as spiritually dead. People are just worried about the here and now. That's who Paul's talking about. Jesus spoke about these when he said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. You see, that's an unbeliever gratifying themselves. But believers are supposed to be thinking differently. Believers are supposed to be acting differently. Believers are supposed to be living differently, right? We're supposed to be. Let, let, me, let me say it this way. A believer can live differently if the first three points of this message have been met. Okay? If, if our punishment is over, if our position is in Christ, and if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can be different because you've been born again. And that should lead your practice to be different. You see, my point is a Christian can be different if they want to, right? You see, if, 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 if a person is not living a different life, one of two things has happened. Either they don't want to, and for a believer, that's called sin, or the other problem is they're not saved. They're not saved. That's the problem. Oh, I know about so-and-so. They're not saved. What do you expect them to do? They can't do anything but what, what non-Christians do, and that's sin, You see, I never met a believer, a true, blue, born-again believer that didn't want to live a holier life. Because that that true Christian, every time they look at their their own life, they had the same thing to say about themselves that Paul said in Romans chapter 7, so wicked man or woman that I am, right? Because God has given us the ability to now turn from sin and turn to him in faith and then live a life of faith that's pleasing to him. You're asking, what makes the difference, Pastor John? What's the difference? Let me tell you what the difference is. It's all about what you think about. It's all about what's inside you, okay? 
Let me try to spell this out for you. Imagine if you would that you had the most amazing spouse in the world. It's not hard for me because I do have the most amazing spouse. And you can disagree with me, but you have the right to be wrong. But anyways, let's say you're, you had the most amazing spouse in the world. And for one of a thousand different reasons, you're continuing to be unfaithful to that spouse over and over and over again. And then they discover your unfaithfulness and they forgive you over and over again. There should come a moment where you say, enough, and you change. Or the other options, you just keep being unfaithful again and again and again. What makes the difference? Here's the difference. It's the love you have for that spouse. Agape, sacrificial, giving and expecting nothing back love that you should have for that spouse. You see, the love for that spouse should change you from the inside out. Do you see the difference? For a believer, if you really love God and you place saving faith in him, that should change you because there's something different inside you. And if you don't change, you're just giving giving evidence that there's something wrong inside you. But a believer has been given the ability because of the power of the Holy Spirit. A believer has the power to be different. Paul doesn't just want the believer to have the right the imputed righteousness of christ i mean that's amazing but there should go it should go on from there paul is saying that god wants you to have the practical righteousness of christ somebody once said that if your religion hasn't changed you i think it's time for you to change your religion there's lots of people maybe the majority people in this country what they think is well what god really wants is for me to be happy no God is not primarily concerned with your happiness. God is far more concerned with your holiness than he is in your happiness. If you want to be happy, here's what you do. Start living a holy life. And then you will become happy after you're holy. But you can't be happy until you get holy. Does that make sense? Who are the happiest people on the planet? Let me tell you, it's the holiest people on the planet. Who are the most unhappy people on the planet? By no coincidence... It's the most unholy people on the planet. Do you think that the Hollywood social elites are happy? I would say no. If, if nothing, the, this Johnny Depp, Amber Heard fiasco that I've had to watch with over and over on TV has taught us is that unholy, unholy people are terribly unhappy. Our spiritual condition needs to match our verbal declaration of who we are in Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit, right? But here's what I want you to know. It is a process. It's a process the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is a big churchy word that means growing holier. So this is how life works. You're going through life and hopefully, Lord willing, you get saved, You recognize that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. How you're a sinner. You turn from your sin. Turn to Christ in faith and he saves you. And they get really excited. I mean, think back to the day you got saved. Like, wow, that's the greatest day ever. And now I'm walking with Christ. And you know what happens when you're walking with Christ as a believer? You fall down. You trip. Wham, face down on the ground. What do you do? You get back up. You don't stay down. You get up, you made a mistake, but God, the Holy Spirit, he's encouraging you. He's saying, hey, get up. 
I love you. You're forgiven. You don't have to stay down. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get up. Keep walking. That's what he tells the believer. If you stay down and you never get up, that probably indicates you are never saved to begin with. A believer has to learn from falling down. You have to learn from your mistakes. You have to go past those mistakes. And next time you go a little bit further. And then you're going to fall down again and again and again. But you know what? You keep getting up. And each time you get up, you learn from those mistakes and you mature. And you're going to grow. And that's the process of maturing and getting holier. This is the sanctification process. I talked about it a few weeks ago. I wish it was instantaneous, but that's not the way it works. It happens over a lifetime. So here is the key to maturity. Hey, Pastor John, give me just one nugget I can walk away with. Here it is. It's all about where your mind goes. It's all about what you think about. Look in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. A little personal story. I got saved when I was 29 years old. Ah, there, you, that's a lot of time for living the wrong way. And then to get saved, get, get, get changed, and like, man, I, I need to be a new person. But I had a job that I would get up early, I would get in a car, and I would drive several hours. And I would listen to talk radio. I would listen, start at 6 a.m. By the time I got off work at like 3 or 4, I'm madder than a hornet. All I've done is listen to talk radio all day. I had to go, you know what? I'm not changing. Why? Because I'm not thinking about the right things. I got to start thinking about Jesus. So instead of that talk radio, I'm going to listen to some worship music. I'm going to sing songs. I'm going to put a, a, a sermon on. I'm going to listen to that all day long. And over the process of time, God is still changing me. He's not done. It's not over. But it's all about what I think about. That he changes me from the inside out. I want to say Romans chapter 8 is an amazing chapter. But being a Christian does not mean the struggle's over. It's not. Remember in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am. You have to struggle, but, it, 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 but you're different now. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, third member of the Trinity. It's all about how we respond to sin. Sin is this bully that's going to come in your life, and he's going to do nothing but beat you up and take your lunch money. And when we see that bully coming, we often get scared and we go, our mind goes somewhere it shouldn't. You know what you should do? For a believer, Christ has given you the helper. That helper can stomp that mud hole and that sin bully. He can get help you get rid of that, that repetitive sin. Anybody sick and tired of that bully? Amen. How about it's, it's time we start handling our sin God's way? And for the believer, here's how you do it. Live for Jesus. Set your mind on the things of Christ. And over time, he will change you. That's for the believer. But for the other unbeliever, it's totally different. First, you must come to Christ. You see, there must come a moment in time where you recognize that you're a sinner. And your sin has separated you from God. But God loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to pay your fine. To pay for your sins. You see, on that cross, it should have been me. It should have been you. But Jesus took our punishment, buried in a tomb, raised again on the third day to grant eternal life to whoever will call on him. 
The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. You've never called on Jesus to save you. I would beg you to do that now. Recognize your sin to turn from it and cry out to him. To say, dear God, I'm a sinner. But Jesus Christ, he came and he paid for my crimes, for my sin. I want to accept what he's done for me. I give you life, my life. Save me from my sins. And I pray this in the perfect, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.